Welcome to the Pivot Fund Pod, where we hold conversations that disrupt journalism and philanthropy. My name is Zuri Berry, and what follows is the keynote presentation for the NC News and Information Summit at Elon University. This conversation is moderated by Melanie Sill, the founding executive director of the NC Local News Workshop at Elon, and features the Pivot Fund CEO, Tracy Powell, as well as Northeastern University professor, Dr. Meredith Clark. They address the challenges facing BIPOC-led news organizations and startups. Here's Melanie to get us going. Thanks, folks. Um, we're really happy today to welcome Dr. Meredith Clark and Tracy Powell. These two women uh, are fueling understanding and action on matters that are really central to journalism's future. They're working in the field and the research arena, and each of them, it's sometime week, each of them has been shining light on parts of journalism and media that others have been slower to recognize. Uh, they've also become a team, <laughs> and they've teamed up on a new research paper that will be published soon by the International Symposium on Online Journalism, ISOJ. They're going to talk about that today. After the presentation, we're going to take your questions, so please uh, think about comments and things you'd like to know, and we'll look forward to that. Their bios are in the program, but let me do brief introductions. Uh, Tracy Powell is CEO and founder of the Pivot Fund, which seeks to support independent community news by and for for black, indigenous, and people of color and other traditionally marginalized communities. She has deep experience over more than a decade. Uh, She's been researching, understanding, recognizing, and developing ideas for ways to support this work and the people who do it. To understand that impact and why this work is so important, consider Tracy's recent piece in Neiman Lab. She was responding to a new national uh, effort called the Roadmap for Local News, which urges major donors to dramatically step up support for news that helps people understand the places where they live. We're all for that, right? Um, uh, There was a gathering at a place called Sunnylands, a fancy conference center, to discuss the roadmap, but as Tracy noted, the gathering was missing some key voices, and I'm quoting here, HBCU graduates, those with GEDs, folks from rural, rural communities, people the industry might not recognize as professional journalists, but who nevertheless are delivering exactly the kind of civic information called for in the Sunnylands roadmap. She wrote, it's not enough to have black and brown people We also need to have a diversity of lived experiences and thought. This is the same mistake the industry as a whole continues to make and why we continue to see declines in public trust. Tracy's a graduate of the Georgetown University Law Center and the University of Georgia. She was a Knight Fellow at Stanford in 2016 and a Fellow at Harvard's Shorenstein Center in 2021, where she did the research that you'll hear about next. The new paper with Professor Clark looks at money that has been flowing to community newsrooms so far and the impact it's had. Meredith Clark uh, is an old friend to some of us here in North Carolina, where she earned her doctorate in mass communication at UNC in 2014. She worked for a time at the News and Observer. She's a journalist by training. She worked at the Tallahassee Democrat in Florida and the Capitol Outlet and also at the Austin American Statesman. She's contributed to Pointer and USA Today and others. 
She's now an associate professor in the School of Journalism in the Department of Communication Studies at Northeastern University. Her research focuses on the intersections of race, media, and power that covers everything from media processes like newsroom hiring and reporting practices to the digital narratives constructed by social media communities. She's also the founding director of the College of Arts, Media, and Designs Center for Communication, Media Innovation, and Social Change. Professor Clark has studied Black Twitter since 2010, and she has a book coming out about that, along with insights for journalists about social media and news coverage. Before she moved to Northeastern, she was an assistant professor at the University of Virginia. For a time, she was lead researcher on the annual diversity survey with ASNE, which later became the News Leaders Association. Please welcome Meredith Clark and Tracy Powell. So I think you'll get started, but let me just say, Mm -hmm. I'm sitting next to Dr. Clark. I don't usually have a a lot of papers in front of me, but um, um, I'm going to read from them because she is Professor Clark, um, and I want to honor and respect that and say thank you so much for for helping me develop this paper. Um, Good start. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time. I'm fond of saying that time is a non-renewable resource, and so I'm always really grateful when people uh, agree to give me some of theirs and to spend it with me. I am going to vamp just a little bit. Uh, This paper is the first, I would say, formal written collaboration that Tracy and I have done together. Uh, But I want to acknowledge that our relationship goes back much, much further. And in fact, it's sort of illustrative of the kind of mentoring and sponsorship and advocacy that we need to see more of in our industry. Tracy Powell looked out for me when I was a journalism student at UNC, mentioned my name in powerful rooms, and trusted me with the responsibility of doing some of the research and the work that I'm able to continue today. So I want to give her her flowers as well for all of her support over the years. Thank you, Tracy. One other, one rehearsed thing that we have said, I was thinking about how to get into this. So um, when you present a research paper, you know, one of the taboos is presenting the same paper in different venues. And I want to talk about the data because people do it all the time. We talk about the data in different places, same paper, different presentations of the data. And I thought to myself, well, how could I introduce this in a way that was substantially different, substantially rather, different than the way we're going to introduce it in ISOJ. And we're putting this information in the context of the third reconstruction, which I'll explain in a minute. But all of that for me goes back to the midlife crisis that I'm having right now. (laughs) So I don't know if anyone's had a chance to read the New York Times' story about midlife crises, but I definitely found myself in the text of that story. Uh, Part of my midlife crisis is, as I showed my mom on my latest trip home, a tattoo, a visible tattoo on my hand, which is of an Adrinka symbol called a Sankofa. And a Sankofa, the message behind it is to look back and learn from something, to reach back to your history, to learn from your history, to know your history in order to understand where you are at that moment. 
And so this moment brings us to the idea of a third reconstruction and the ideas that we're talking about in recognizing parallel systems of local news that to date have gone somewhat unacknowledged. So to put this in context for you, you've probably heard a lot about critical race theory, that it teaches children how to hate each other, specifically that it teaches white children and white people to feel guilty about their history. But in fact, critical race theory is a legal framework used to identify and analyze how racial subjugation works within systems. It is applicable to media systems as well. In fact, it helped us to uncover a roadmap to understanding, in part, why local media is experiencing some of the challenges that it's going through today. According to Richard Delgado and Jean Stefancic, critical race theory is a movement that considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up but places them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, context, group and self-interests, and even feelings and the unconscious. Unlike traditional civil rights, which stresses incrementalism and step-by-step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law. To make the connection between critical race theory and what we are talking about today, I want to acknowledge some history that you're probably all familiar with. You may know that in 1968, the Kerner Commission, created in response to the civil disorders that roiled the country following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., warned that we were creating two Americas, one black and one white, separate and unequal. Now with a longer lens on history, we recognize that there are in fact many Americas, each with their own set of circumstances prescribed by social, economic, and political realities. The fact is that there always have been. There are two points in which this country has directly confronted this reality though. The first Reconstruction, a period that followed the Civil War, and the Civil Rights Movement, which is referred to as the Second Reconstruction. In his book on the First Reconstruction, the period between the end of the Civil War and the 1877 States Compromise, which ushered in the era of segregation known as Jim Crow, Sociologist Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois spoke this warning about what it means to forget the painful and the ugly parts about our nation's history and how doing so creates a more tolerable and comfortable world to live in, but one that is a fantasy. One is astonished, quoting here, one is astonished in the history, in the study of history, at the recurrence of the idea that evil must be forgotten, disordered skimmed over. The difficulty, of course, with this philosophy is that history loses its value as an incentive and example. It paints perfect people and noble nations, but it does not tell the truth. Our journalists, or as journalists, excuse me, our first obligation is to tell the truth, to provide sufficient context, perspective, and the inclusion of multiple voices so that people hear and understand our social realities 
in the ways that they actually exist. While this commitment has always been challenging, it has taken on a new sense of urgency in recent years, thanks to assaults on press freedom that range from the White House to the State House and have eroded members' trust between members of our community. Now, I have not misspoken. When we talk about Reconstruction in the South, we often speak of it, when we speak of it at all, as though it is simply a period of history, a bygone era that we all know existed, but that we do not see evidence of today. But in the second wave of the movement for Black Lives in 2020, as blatant racial injustice compelled people to leave the relative safety of our homes, while the ravages of COVID-19 made being outside, together, a different kind of life-threatening proposition, the Poor People's Campaign, spearheaded by North Carolina's Reverend William Barber, introduced a a list of demands for the third reconstruction. Now, although there's no role specifically for news media in the list, we find room for local news's critical role in the last of the 14 demands, which reads as follows. We demand a third reconstruction that unites the 140 million poor and low-income people in this country to realize their political power. As part of her decades-long commitment to advancing the stories of marginalized people, particularly black and brown folks, Tracy Powell spent most of 2021 and 2022 collecting data about BIPOC startups, including how the recent push for racial justice and philanthropic funding has impacted their capacity to produce news for otherwise underserved and ignored communities. In our paper, we applied five tenets of critical race theory, which I will discuss during this talk, in order to analyze the data. We use them to demonstrate our common understanding of how the idea of local news often erases, or worse, as Sherry Yu writes, instrumentalizes what's commonly described as ethnic media. It makes outlets that serve groups like Asian elders, day laborers, and poor people impacted by environmental racism into convenient tools to burnish the reputations of funders and other news stakeholders, rather than providing those outlets with the critical support they need in order to build infrastructure and develop sustainably. In our paper, we used critical race theory as it exists in two similar ways. First, to identify the intersections of racism and other forms of subordination. Our primary research question asked, How does the intervention of philanthropic funding impact the health and sustainability of BIPOC-founded news organizations? The second way we applied critical race theory was to challenge the dominant ideology and its assumptions. In our research, we found that philanthropic interventions often require a form of means testing and qualification, much like the benevolent societies created after the first Reconstruction, which failed to recognize the needs of newly free black people. For instance, these newly freed folks were often categorized as lazy, not willing to work, or in need of specific training, because instead of seeking work in places where they had previously been abused, 
They went off searching for members of their communities, prioritizing togetherness, safety, and family above the demands of the economy. These insights led us to reconsider a foundational problem in how we talk about journalism entrepreneurship. That is, Tracy, how have we misunderstood and fundamentally mischaracterized the landscape of local news? Understanding how news organizations created, founded, and funded by journalists of color are local news. The industry talks a lot about saving local news. They often start with a news outlet, an influencer who is sometimes a journalist. The Pivot Fund believes in what's possible when you put the community first. We started with the community and asked them to lead us to trusted news and information sources. And that's how we found what I called called oases in Georgia's news deserts um, that dot rural and South Georgia. When you start with the community, you see a real difference. That's when you start to see the actual impact of news and information. For years, black and brown folks begged traditional corporate media organizations to cover their communities. They wanted to be covered more consistently, more comprehensively, more accurately, and more fairly. When that never happened, these communities began building their own news and information sources using what was at their disposal, social media platforms that were free to access to them and to their community members. Primarily launched with their own funds, these founders were the subject of my first paper, The Rise of the New Jacks, produced several years ago. These publications spoke and continue to speak directly to historical and contemporary concerns among communities of color, specifically ethnicities and common language groups. In fact, you're probably hearing a lot more about them now than when, than when I wrote about them. They include MLK 50, which just received $2 million from the Ford Foundation. When we met them, they had nothing. It includes the Sahan Journal, in Minneapolis, started by Mukhtar Ibrahim. When we met him, he had very much little or nothing and making a way out of no way, and now is one of the top journalism organizations in the country. Let me share for a couple of numbers with you. Nearly $2 billion has been invested in news media since 2015. For example, between 2009 and 2015, 40% of the $469.5 that was awarded then by foundations went to, to, to just three outlets, ProPublica, the Center for Public Integrity, and the Center for Investigative Reporting. And we all know what's happening with a few of those now. These approaches are the, are the journalism world's paradoxical devaluation of its own essential workers. We know that organizations like MLK 50 are essential in listening to and communicating with communities that are otherwise unreachable by mainstream legacy and white-owned entrepreneurial media ventures. When I launched the Racial Equity and Journalism Fund, REG for short, less than 1% of philanthropic dollars were invested in hyperlocal media serving diverse communities. Some of that has changed thanks 
but only slightly, in large part due to Ridge and the Pivot Fund. But still, only a handful of BIPOC newsrooms receive a woeful small percentage of dollars compared to their white counterparts. As Meredith stated, there is a fundamental misunderstanding of the current media landscape. Funders don't understand how communities access information. Funders don't understand where communities get information. Funders don't understand what communities do once they have information at their fingertips. Funders are busy building a system that we already have, one that's already failing us. In large part, the lion's share of funding still goes to white-led organizations. Even dollars meant to support BIPOC newsrooms are being filtered through white-led associations. Funders think that if you build, if you build it, they will come. That's simply not true. People are going to go to those they trust to get the information they need and want. And lots of times, that doesn't include traditional institutions with whom they've had negative experiences. It's our job to ensure those, those sources that counter dis and misinformation with credible, quality, representative, and reflective um, content of communities they serve are supported. We know the outlets doing this work exist. Too long we've been mired in the dysfunctional exercise of trickle-down economics. We should focus instead on hyperlocal news outlets, trusted by the communities they serve. When we do that, we can lift the entire information ecosystem rather than replicating failed and failing systems. We know that organizations like Enlace North Carolina and La Noticia both, who I am proud to say I invested when others did not, are essential in listening to and communicating with communities that are otherwise unreachable by mainstream legacy and white-owned entrepreneurial media ventures. What will it take for philanthropic organizations, including larger media outlets, with the capacity for cooperation and collaboration to make meaningful investment in and partnership with these BIPOC-funded startups. The recent Sunnylands roadmap um, to local news report that Melanie mentioned earlier talked about an emerging strategy of these hyper-local civic news and information um, of startups. There's nothing emerging about them. They were there about a decade ago when I wrote the first New Jack's Rising report, and they're still there now. They're growing. BIPOC news organizations have been part of the local news environment since the founding of Freedom's Journal, the first newspaper published by free black men in 1827, before the Civil War, before Reconstruction. New Jack's, the second wave of black and brown digital entrepreneurs operating on multiple platforms, these online-first outlets challenge media stereotypes with an understanding of technology and big data. They have married the power of media and digital technology to tell stories that are underrepresented in local or national mainstream journalism outlets. New Jacks are typically for-profit entities, such as MLK50, um, or Home Rule News in my hometown of Georgia. 
challenges the new jacks have, have faced is that they include or they have limited capital at limited, limited access to capital and resources and often use their own personal funds to launch their enterprises for the most part these outlets are one or two person operated endeavors with less than $20,000 in capital we know these outlets exist but for too long we've been mired in the dysfunctional exercise of trickle down media economics betting that a paternalistic approach to investment and training for these outlets or, or in organizations that have existing social capital is the best path forward. But what funders don't understand is that you can train the heck out of these organizations. If they don't have the capital to execute on the training, their money is going down the drain. What will it take for philanthropic organizations, including the larger media outlets, with the capacity to make for cooperation, to make meaningful investment in and partnership with these BIPOC-funded BIPOC startups? And I ask you that question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I would say that if we are going to be part of the evolutionary potential in this country, in this moment of critical economic and social movement, we must make local news media a participant in rather than a simple observer of the third reconstruction. And I want to offer this. Consider that in the Civil War, the event that predated Reconstruction, 627,000 Americans lost their lives. In the COVID pandemic, from its announcement, from its proclamation in the beginning of January 2020 to February 2023, more than one million Americans have lost their lives. If we are relying on these data points of death as a significant marker of social, economic, and political change in this country, then I would say by these numbers alone, we can recognize that it is time for a third reconstruction. This moment, though, must not only include people of color, people of the global majority, it must include poor people. 140 million people, or 40% of the American population, were living in poverty before COVID-19. 50 million of those people were living in the South. And today, 1.4 million people living at or below the poverty line, called North Carolina, home. The critical race theory analysis of the intersecting problems of economic and information poverty that we entertained in our paper require us to engage in what I call reparative journalism, an approach that is built upon, first, a commitment to social justice. We must begin with an admission that through its establishment via the genocide or attempted genocide of Native Americans, such as the Lumbee tribe, of whose lambs we're sitting on today, and the enslavement of kidnapped Africans, every institution that has been created in this country is built on a broken foundation. It is one that cannot be remedied, but it may be redeemable. Reparative journalism also highlights experiential knowledge. We challenge the creed that journalism provides a voice for the voiceless, Instead, we recognize that everyone has a voice or a means of expression. What disempowered people need is amplification 
and powerful ears who will hear. One of news media's core opportunities to be an active participant in the third reconstruction is to focus on vulnerability as the central critical criterion by which our news values should be recalibrated for the demands of our times. For instance, how do stories about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank affect the workers at this university? How do stories about Elon Musk taking over Twitter affect those people who rely on social media and digital media to communicate in emergencies with their communities? Our strategy is to focus on irrigating the ground in which the communities are working and building out timely responses to the historical injustice of exclusion in the news. Some of the suggestions that Tracy has made in previous work for Borealis include adopting different news values. Now, we know that adopting different news values is a challenge. Think, for instance, about all of the reaction to these new forms of journalisms, such as social journalism, which is practiced at CUNY's Graduate School of Journalism, reparative journalism, which I just mentioned, movement journalism, which is something that MLK 50 advances, and solidarity journalism, as reflected in the work of Dr. Anita Varma. But I have to ask you, Tracy, with all of these new labels and approaches, could it be that we're losing the focus of local news? No. (laughs) In fact, we're creating a clearer picture of what is and how it is delivered to dynamic audiences by creators who know how to navigate outside the confines of what we consider mainstream journalism. For example, the Pivot Fund launched a year ago and we invested $2 million in direct grants and wraparound support to news outlets in middle and south Georgia. One of them was BTV. Well, there's two, BTV and Pasa Lavos, and I'll briefly tell you about them. BTV, when we found them, had 25,000 followers on Facebook. They now have more than 60,000 followers. And the owner, a graduate of an HBCU, um, couldn't find a job in front of the camera doing the news. And so she thought she was leaving journalism, started posting on Facebook, and got that incredible following. Now, she now owns a TV station that is in 600,000 households on the Spectrum Network. For the first time after our investment, she's hired a sports editor and is already on track to generating $124,000 in revenue based on its sports coverage. It doesn't include other revenue streams. Pasa Lavo Savannah started on Facebook as well, primarily Facebook Live when the city was under a hurricane warning. The founder believed that her community couldn't wait a month for the Hispanic newspaper owned by Gatehouse to come out to figure out how to keep themselves safe. After our investment just a year ago, and shortly after Uvalde, what happened in Uvalde, Texas, Savannah's Hispanic students and their parents believed they too were faced with a similar threat. Local news stations flew to the scene to report on an alleged gunman. Only Pasla Vos reported in Spanish. So the parents of those Hispanic students 
mostly, mostly affected by this event, understood what was happening. Amazing how community members would turn to a news, news source they trust that delivers information in the language they understand. Recently, Postle Vos broke a viral story about a bus driver who, who banned students from speaking Spanish on the bus, an incident that is now being investigated by the school district. And Postle Vos has led coverage in the city from the beginning to the, to the current state of that story. When we invested in Postle Vos, they had 13,000 followers on Facebook. They now have over 20,000 Facebook followers, a growth of 35%. What news editor or publisher wouldn't want that kind of growth? And they have, they have 23,000 followers on WhatsApp. Now, I could tell, talk about Georgia all day long because it's my home state, but I want to bring it back closer to home to where we are now. When we invested in, in Lasse, North Carolina, I have to admit, it was a, gave them a step-up grant because I didn't fully understand what this organization was about, but I knew there was something there. And watching them build out their newsroom, launching a WhatsApp channel, and reaching the communities they've reached, I can tell you I was beaming with pride what they were able to do with that little $20,000. So when it came back around, they got almost 200000 the next time. And to see what they, where they are now with a million-dollar grant from the American Journalism Project. That's what can happen in Lassie, North Carolina, not just an information source for their community. They're listing the entire information system here in North Carolina. We're not in the business of saving newspapers. We're in the business of saving local news. We're in, ensuring that communities get quality, fact-based, fact truthful critical news and information because they deserve nothing less. We understand that organizations like BTV, Postle Vos, in Velocity, North Carolina, Lando Tizis, are our best defense against the spread of disinformation and the industry's best chance to rebuild trust in journalism. Ultimately, there are four concrete actions that philanthropic bodies can play to improve the news and information ecosystem. One, provide general operating grant support, not programmatic dollars. Grants can support storytelling and reporting on particular issues, as well as encourage collaboration between mainstream news organizations and news outlets led by and for communities, people of color, and among the, the news outlets by people of color themselves. Two, encourage capacity building. Provide support for developing infrastructure to identify new and sustainable revenue sources, journalism training, and training in technological support to assist in digital transitions. Three, create knowledge repositories. Fund the development and sustainability of capture and catalog sites run by New Jacks and, and legacy media outlets to keep track of the growing field and opportunities for field investment. Four, Trade paternalistic approaches to training for peer-to-peer -peer learning and get out of the way. Media outlets led by and for people of color need a space to share ideas, learn from each other, and collaborate. These learning spaces in the form of workshops, 
retreats, immersion, and exchange experiences could serve as a resource for new, for new outlets and networking opportunities between funders, mainstream media outlets, advertisers, and news, and news outlets led by and for people of color. I want to add one more. Trust them. They know how to serve their communities best. Currently, well, let me just say, let me associate myself this time with Dick Toffel's comments about intermediaries. Now, I run an intermediary, but not all intermediaries are created equal. When you, there are, I won't call anybody name, try to stay out of trouble, but there are organizations that have built their business models on the backs of publishers of color. That has to stop. They have built their capacities, but not the capacities of the newsrooms. What are funders actually doing? We have to ask ourselves that question. Because if the newsrooms don't have the capacity to do the work, it's not getting done. When, you, when an intermediary is the one hiring reporters, data journalists, editors, that's the, that's the same system we currently have where there's a news and information being produced by somebody somewhere, some white-led organization that thinks they know how to serve our communities better, and it, tri- and it doesn't trickle down. I mean, it's, it's just the same system. We're replicating a system that we know does not work. So returning to the place where we began... Let us be reminded of what was promised. And I'll let you pick up from there. Let's be reminded of what was promised and what is possible and of the lessons that we learned from the first Reconstruction following this country's civil war and the second Reconstruction, the civil rights movement, as an attempt to fulfill the country's potential. We'll return to the words of Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. In Black Reconstruction, he continues... One reads the truer, deeper facts of Reconstruction with a great despair. It is at once so simple and human and yet so futile. There is no villain, no idiot, no saint. There are just people, people who crave ease and power, people who know want and hunger. They all dream and strive with an ecstasy of fear and a strain of effort balked of hope and hate. Yet the rich world is wide enough for all, wants all, needs all. So slight a gesture, a word, might set the strife in order, not with full content, but with the growing dawn of fulfillment. We thank you. Thank you. need a couple hours to think about that. <laughs> but fortunately, we have all these smart people out here who are going to have some questions. Um, I want to ask you about a little bit stepping back as you approached doing this research. You know, I'm struck by the breadth of what you just presented, which I know we just got a synopsis there. Uh, 
had a preview of the paper. Thank you for that. Um, but how did you how did you focus this, and how what did you look at in your research? What kinds of information did you gather? So we surveyed over a hundred um, founders of color, and we asked them specific questions about um, their sustainability, their health, what kind of worries they had. Um, we asked them about several of the kinds of programs that exist now, whether it was INN's Newsmatch, which was pretty popular, to um, Lions Boot Camp, um, Report for America, um, several of those programs, the Facebook Accelerator, um, and so, so on and so forth. And we wanted their honest opinions about how well these programs were working. And they gave us honest answers. We did not, um, the surveys were anonymous, so I don't know. Um, who answered and what, you know, what they thought to that news outlet. But we asked them these questions, and they were very, very forthcoming with us. Um, think They said things in the survey that they would not and could not say in a room like this. And um, Meredith, how did you, uh, you know, you, you do academic research, and you, um, but how did you think about doing this work in a way that also could have resonance with the, with the field of practice? Um, well, one, doing academic research, the dream is that someone comes to you and says, hey, I've collected this data about something that no one's really talking about. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Let's go. That means that we can take this data and uh, think about applying it in a couple of different contexts. And so having a foot in both worlds, um, being connected to practitioners, but also working every day in academic spaces, I thought about what people needed to know to understand that when we talk about local news, we are often not talking about the New Jacks and the BIPOC-founded news organizations. That so often we're having these conversations about the future of journalism, but we're concentrating really on the past of it. And I know that there are plenty of people who know that these organizations exist. They know that people work for them, but they sort of see them as an also-ran. That's why I refer to this as the parallel press. Like, this is another version, another part of the press that is out there that is functional, and that's filling a very significant role in the built media environment. And so I wanted to make sure that as people reviewed what we wrote up in the paper, they saw, they, if they took away nothing else, they saw that the small grants that these organizations are getting in many ways are more hindrance than they are help. Because you're out competing for $5,000, for $10,000, which is not going to pay for a reporter. Like what among us, you know, those of us who are connected in university communities, who would we send among our students to work for, you know, only $5,000 a year? None of us. We can't. Even a, a new graduate, we cannot send our kids out into the world to work for that kind of money. And yet these organizations are having people basically jump through hoops, the incubators, the training programs, some of which are very helpful and in some cases necessary, but they're doing it for very little money. And so I wanted to make sure that that point was clear, not only to practitioners, but also to the funders themselves, and so that journalists who participated in the survey could see that they were not alone in experiencing it. Because one thing that resonated from the data was that they felt like everyone else was doing it, 
they needed to do it too. This gets to a point that, uh, that Tracy made also. Um, just curious, how many people out there feel that you're trying to do something that there isn't a real model for from the past? And, you know, this, uh, the, this conference attracts people who are really intent on building the future of this work. But you mentioned that funders, I guess, like to stick with what, you know, I'm not picking on funders. I think it's sort of human nature. But we like to, oh, I know what, I've, I've seen that before. Oh, that's good. You know, that feels comfortable to me. That's, that's real big J journalism. And, you know, um, so... Uh, how do, is there progress in that regard? And how does someone who's trying to deliver journalism in a way that connects with contemporary life, with the needs of communities today, how do they make their case effectively? What have, have you seen any models where you can, you can both build it and show it at the same time? I think I, I, I named off a few of them, you know, MLK 50 in Lassie, North Carolina. I mean, those are it's 100. Those are the ones that really stand out in my mind, um, documented. Um, I think the, the, the thing that was common among all of them, number one, they were in the same, co same cohort, I think. Um, and so they were able to learn from each other. And that was really helpful, especially documented in, in, in Lassie about around the WhatsApp um, products. I think um, we gave them the runway. Borealis gave general operating support, so we gave them this runway and allowed them to add capacity to the organization so that they can get the, do the work that they're now being recognized for. And so, I mean, those are the, those, are those models. Um, I, want, I, I guess I want to say this. Um, yes, I think funders are very well-intentioned and I commend them for the money that is now coming into the journalism space. Um, but what concerns me is, and it's reflected in our, in our report and the, the comments from the founders, is that um, there were many mistakes made in the for-profit traditional media, corporate media sector. One of them was regarding recruitment and hiring. Um, those editors tended to recruit and hire people that were in their network who looked like them and who were, quote-unquote, a good fit within the organization. That oftentimes left out people of color, including some of the founders of these organizations. That's why they left. Some of those same people are now on the nonprofit side making funding decisions. And they're making this, those funding decisions the same way they did hiring and recruiting when they were on the for-profit side. And that's the problem. I want to open it up uh, to questions. If, uh... How do we change it? What, what has to happen in order for us, because of some of these you know, incubators and programs that you speak of, and the hurdles that one has to jump through to, if you will, be validated by these. How do we change that? What needs to happen in order for us to begin to have an insertion in these, what we would consider parallel press paper? Yes, how do we change it? Just for the recording, make sure the question gets captured. Uh, 
I think one of the ways that we change it, you know, it's in our nature as human beings to, to look for a singular solution, right? We want one easy way or one comprehensive way to do it. I think that there are going to be many approaches that help us change it. And one of those is to think about this as an evolutionary process. You know, the country goes through evolution. We as people go through evolution. This system goes through evolution. One of the steps in this evolution right now is in the data collection and in the reporting of what is actually working. One of the reasons that I was so eager to work on this particular data was because without data, without some sort of um, substantiation in the institutions that we have come to respect in, in the university, people won't believe in what's happening. So without a publication in an academic journal, without someone who's in the field who has said, I have been in touch with these people, I know what their experience is, I can vouch for them, there isn't the kind of translation that's necessary for folks who are in powerful positions like funders to say, maybe we should heed what some of this data says and try something different. So I think that that is an initial step. Another one of the steps that's evocative and something that Tracy said was looking at the proof that is already there that these organizations are making and doing, right? Uh, I love the point that she raised about this incident in Savannah where parents needed to know about a threat to children at their school. They could not wait a month for the Spanish language paper to come out. If that is not an appeal and a call to action and a notice of urgency, I don't know what is. And so putting that in something like a grant application or mentioning it in conversation with funders, uh, I think is essential to getting them to understand beyond the confines of what is the immediate return on investment. I cannot tell you how much it's worth to a parent to be able to get notice in their native language that something is wrong at their child's school, that they need to go and take care of their kid in that particular moment. And if you know that no other news organization in that area is doing that work, that is a distinctive proposition. And those are the kind of things that are going to have to be surfaced and talked about and met with the sort of um, appreciation that is necessary, I think, to start shifting that needle. Thank you. Have, we, have, have we gotten to a point where, we're, where we are too reliant on data for the sake of having data and not so much on impact? And how can we change that? Okay, Professor, are we too reliant on data? <laughs> I, I have thoughts. I have lots of thoughts. Um, impact is something. So again, I'm going back to the, the academic taboo of presenting the same paper in multiple venues because impact is something that we speak uh, very clearly about in this paper. Come to ISOJ next month. You know, you got some time. Come see us in Austin. We'll have tacos and margaritas and all that good stuff. Um, but data and impact are, for me, related. And the way that we often think about data is in quantifiable terms. We think about the dollars, we think about the page views, we think about the time spent, we think about the shares, that sort of thing. What we need is more empathy, honestly, understanding what the human experience is like when information is not readily available to you and what sort of vacuums that we are creating and have created 
And I think, honestly, we have enough evidence now. If you can't look at the assault on the Capitol on January 6th and say that, you know, we know that there's some information voids there, we have all the data that we need there to move differently, um, this might not be the business for you. If you can't look at the spread of rumors throughout different communities about things like COVID vaccination and see how it devastated particular communities, this might not be the business for you. I think that that's one of the places where, you know, and honestly, I will go ahead and volunteer your local neighborhood professor because we enjoy positions that are safe enough to to say these things. That's why I love this job. Um, I can say, you know, there's plenty of data there, and I don't know how else to put it, but the failure is, is on your hands if you're not looking at what is already being presented and realizing that there is a significant problem, that people don't need to restate it for you in another way. I guess, I, I guess to clarify my question is more, are we focusing on the wrong data? Because in some respects, impact is data. Yes. you just called out is impact data, but we're still focusing on that quantifiable data. Mm-hmm. And how is that, how does, is there any, is there any hope for getting that shift in mindset? so that they are taking the impact of the data in greater weight. I think that's something Tracy covers in her newsletter pretty often. Yeah. I think one of the things, Andre, um, is we need to, um, we need to have a, a shared definition of a few words. Sustainability is one. Sustainability is, means a, it's a lot different when you're talking to someone living in a rural community if you're a BIPOC person, a newsroom in a rural community, than it is when you're talking about, well, I was going to say CIR, but again, um, you know, I, it's, just, it's just different. So we need to have a shared definition around that. We need to have a shared definition around what scale is. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are funders talking about when they're talking about it must scale? Um, and we need to have a, a shared definition among, uh, on that word impact quite frankly. What do we mean by that? Um, and right now we don't have it. I think funders and others like to throw around words like that a lot. Um, but it, it, it doesn't have the same meaning for a lot of you know, um, other organizations as it does for community-based newsrooms. Yes, up in the back. So in the kind of philanthropy world right now, I don't know, I don't a lot of the conversations, how do we how do we find more philanthropy that's not journalism philanthropy? And you know, I know that you know the data set uh, Tracy that you were talking about is, is journalism funders for the most part, is funders to journalism. I'm curious, you know, as you're kind of raising for pivot funders to other projects, are there are there ways that we can go to the broader philanthropic community more effectively to help them kind of see a connection between their work and their mission and their priorities and the news organizations and the jobs that, that you are talking about, which are, are such critical parts of the kind of local information infrastructure uh, that we need to I want to tell the story of, uh, of BTV, another story about BTV. Um, there was a, a tragedy in LaGrange, Georgia. That's a real community, probably about a little less than two hours from Atlanta. Um, three young men were killed. 
two white, one black. And um, the two white young men were baseball players at a local college. So I think they were headed to the national championships or something like that. The main, the quote unquote, mainstream newspaper reported it. And I think there was one line in the story about the young black man who was killed. He was basically erased. His life was erased. BTV came along and reported the story the way it should have been reported in the first place. They did a story about all three young men, interviewed the families of all three young men, and talked about what was lost and what was lived. In BTV's coverage, all three lives mattered. And I had been talking to a local community foundation, um, local family foundation, the Callaway Family Foundation, about supporting uh, you know hyperlocal community news organizations. They don't they don't usually do that. They do church buildings and stuff like that. Um, and so when I originally talked to him, the president of the foundation, he was like, uh, "Well, I don't know about." Journalism, no, that's not really what we do. Um, but I vaguely have heard about this BTV. After this tragedy happened, he saw how divided his community was. He witnessed firsthand the racial outrage that happened after the original mainstream news coverage came out about it. And so I just so happened to have gone back down to LaGrange to do a site visit or something, and I stopped by. The, the Family Foundation, and I wanted to talk to him again about supporting journalism. And he he said to me before I could even get it out my mouth, BTV isn't just a source for the African Americans here. They are a source for the entire community. What they are doing is incredible. When can I have lunch with you and them? That's how we get them to see what what matters most. You know, they have to see it. They have to understand that when you support these organizations, these community-based BIPOC newsrooms, it can lift the entire information system. And that's what they need to see. Mm-hmm. Pivot Fund talks about this. Um, we provide three years of funding, right? Um, right now it's about 150000 a year, and then we provide the wraparound services. Um, but we are also working, like going to the Callaway Family Foundation, to open up new revenue streams. I learned that through Borealis when I worked with, you, with your co- cohort, Alvaro. Um, opening up new funding sources, but at the same time, training and teaching how to generate other revenue streams. You know, we talked. We had. We talked about. You know, uh, audiences all the time. Remember, and 
trying to figure out whether you can build a membership program or event strategy, all of those things. Um, we did at the same time, we, were all, we also worked to open up new revenue streams. And the way sustainability in my mind means that you're able to continue covering that community, um, you know, after the three-year period. It doesn't mean, and again, I get myself in trouble all the time, but you can't pay for a reporter for one year and then that reporter is gone the next year. That's not sustainable. You need more than one year of support to to keep a reporter around um, or even the reporter might leave, but to hire another reporter, you've got to build something. That's one of the things communities, again, communities have been begging us for to cover us consistently, comprehensively. And we can't do that if you just have one year of funding, maybe, if that. Um, you, know, do you, you know, do you have any other thoughts on sustainability? Yes. Um, thank you. I, there's a one line in the paper, and it's actually a reference to uh, another report that was written by, um, I believe it's Anya Schifrin, the paper was published by the Columbia Journalism School, and it's an assessment of 35 uh, global news startups around the world. It's uh, outside of the U.S. And one of the lines that's in that paper is that the stark reality is that some organizations are always going to require donor support. There's just no getting around it. And it goes back to something I mentioned in this talk when we think about the broken foundation of the country, or I'll say I, when I think about the broken foundation of the country. We cannot go back and undo the Columbusing of America. We cannot go back and undo the legacy of chattel slavery in this country. But what we are, the condition that we are forced into in by history, by the choices that we couldn't make before, because we weren't there, is to try and address what has been broken and to do that by shoring up the systems that we have. In some respects, that is going to mean that maybe donors are a consistent part of this process. We have seen how the advertising model is now you know, reaching, and I want to call it the bottom of its downswing. I hope it's the bottom of its downswing. It could get worse. But we're seeing how these things proceed cyclically. And I think that in this country in particular, we have a really hard time with imagining a growth cycle that has a downturn. We are not prepared for it. We do not factor it into our plans for sustainability. And so when we think about journalism organizations that are going to continue, they are going to have to plan for that downswing and make it part of that model. So what does that mean? Does it mean that you scale back in terms of the scope of coverage? Do you pivot to a different platform? Do you focus on a particular audience while you build a different revenue stream and then build up from there? There are a number of different ways that we could approach that problem, but I will say as far as sustainability is concerned, I do think that donors are always going to be a part of the equation, and I do also think that evolution and being able to change and be responsive and reflexive about the moment is essential to surviving. 
I don't even counter that. You know, when you look at legacy, you gonna disagree? Of- no, 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 not disagreeing. I'm adding too. I'm additive. So <laughs> I would, I would just say that a lot of the legacy news organizations have already kind of figured this out. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been some of them been around for 150 years, so they're doing something right, and we need to understand what that something is and honor that and respect that. And help, you know, and build on it. Um, I think, you know, when you've been around for 150 years, is that not sustainable? I have one last question since um, most of our group are, are not funders. Um, but um, you talked about a, at a couple of points in your talk and in our conversations, uh, people are getting and giving information in communities. Information is flowing. Mm -hmm. And um, there also is at times a phenomenon of an unfair relationship between someone who comes in wanting to be a news partner, which is really, hey, let me have your audience. Um, Or, um, hey, would you translate this story for us? Uh, We want our story to reach people in Spanish and so on. Again, well-intentioned, maybe, uh, but... um, but not uh, equitable, probably, in terms of a partnership. So for people working in, in, in news organizations or in the room, what are some, some uh, good practices to finding where those, that information is flowing, working with community media, and working with community to tell stories accurately, as in the LaGrange story? We'll take two more hours on that. <laughs> Um, I think, oh, they want snacks. Okay, I'll try to yeah, make it. Yeah, we got need drinks and Quit snacks. Then. But last question. Quit then. Um, trust and ask, right? Um, instead of giving a story to them and saying, "Hey, can you translate this and run it in your on on your website?" Um, why not say, "Hey, let's you know." We have the resources over here. We have editors. We have, you know, the tech. Uh, we have community engagement folks. Why don't we, can we work together and go out to your community and ask the community about this particular topic and what kinds of information they need or what, what's their, you know, response to this? Instead of trying to, you know, just hand over, because a lot of, and I had this conversation earlier with Fiona, a lot of times, <laughs> You can, I mean, the point isn't to tell the story, the story you think they want to know about through their lens. The reason these organizations exist in the first place is because they are telling stories through the lens of their community. So that content, that story that you just wrote, that's not through the community's lens. It may not even be of interest to them. And so we shouldn't make assumptions. And that's what's happening a lot right now. Um, We make assumptions about, oh, this is an important topic or an important story. And so we'll produce produce the story at some organization somewhere and then, you know, distribute it to all the BIPOC newsrooms. That's an example of what's not working. How do we make this work? I, I am going to echo Tracy's comments about asking, but also listening. One of the points that we mentioned in the talk was getting out of the way. And I think that we all, in our earnestness and our commitment to the profession, 
We all believe that we're listening and that we're paying attention. But I wonder how often we get out of our own comfort zones to understand how other people are receiving information, where they seek information, and how it acts in, in their lives, how they make use of that information. The example that I give is um, I now live in Boston, um, totally fish out of water in, in this northern area. And one of the things that I was warned about before I moved there was about racism in Boston. I was like, okay, well, that's, that's fairly established and racism is everywhere. You all have to worry about the cold, not racism. Um, but when I got there, I, because of the community that my husband and I live in, it's heavily Dominican. And so I have a new way of understanding how news and information flows through a completely different community that I had not been exposed to before, could not have been exposed to in any other situation where I was living. So I have the opportunity to listen in. I I can't understand it because I don't understand enough Spanish. I I know some French, but not enough Spanish. So I pick up on the Haitian Creole a little bit easier. But I listen to how folks pay attention to radio, how they talk to each other, uh, women who work in my neighborhood, how much they rely on WhatsApp for news. And it has completely reframed the way that I think about a news diet and I think about consumption and habits. Mine pre-pandemic were get up, get on Twitter, see what the journalists I'm following are talking about today, follow those stories on their respective platforms and work from there. As a result of living in this different community, I take my earbuds out when I go down to the train I ride the train into the city and I listen to what other people are talking about and what they're consulting. They're not consulting the globe. They're consulting the local black, indigenous, people of color owned news organizations and each other. And so what sounds like something like gossip is actually news. It takes the reporting that has been done in other places and it passes it along through the customs of their systems so that people get the information that they need to make certain decisions. It may come back to a specific source, but ultimately it flows in a very different way. And through that observation, I'm able to see that there are ways that we need to recalibrate our brains, recalibrate our thinking, honestly just move ourselves out of the situations that we are used to and comfortable with in order to really observe how news is working in other sectors of our space and our communities. The news and information that's resonating with communities right now don't necessarily look, sound, or feel like traditional journalism. And that's what we all need to understand. All right. Anybody need a drink? (laughs) Uh, Thank you both so much. This is tremendous and gives us so much to think about and look forward to your paper being published. Thanks. Thanks.